I have the wonderful privilege of going through this chapter and also Revelation 20. Uh, it's a pretty large chunk and there's some difficult passages in there. So how about we pray and ask God to help us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word and that you use your word to challenge us, to encourage us, to point us to Jesus. So Lord, we ask that you do that tonight. Lord, I pray that your word will be spoken clearly and Lord, that you will challenge us to keep living for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, for the last year or so, uh, us Queenslanders have been going through a time of suffering and vindication. You see, after losing last year's Origin series, there have been many claims. We've suffered criticism. We copped it from guys like Daryl, Gus, and everyone else from down south. They said it's the beginning of a new blue dynasty, that JT is too old, that we're the dad's army, that they figured us all out. And it's the start of a new era in state of origin footy. But after a year of putting up with Daryl's blue shirt, with Gus riding us off, and seeing Paul Gallon's gloating face, well, we proved them all wrong, didn't we? We put up with their gloating and their opposition. We suffered and we endured. We always knew we were better than them. And guess what? We were right in the end. Queensland on top, just like the eight years before. Suffering and vindication. Well, as we come to these heavy chapters here in Revelation 19 and 20, that's the vibe that we're supposed to get as we go through these visions and images. Suffering and vindication. Uh, let's take a moment to remember who received this prophetic letter. These guys, they were really suffering. They were really being persecuted. You see, Christians in the first century, life was hard as they followed Jesus. They couldn't get jobs. They were outsiders in the community. They were abused, assaulted. They were forced to worship the emperor. And if they didn't, they'd face jail and death. We have to remember that this letter and these visions were written to real people, real Christians, with a real practical purpose. It meant something to the Christians back when they first read this letter. And it still applies to us today. So we need to keep ourselves grounded as we interpret these more difficult parts of Scripture here. To the suffering Christian in the first century, Jesus wanted to remind them of their vindication to give them hope so that they can live for Jesus. That even though they suffer now, that their future victory is assured, that it's in the bag, that justice will be done, evil will be judged, that Christ will win, and their faith will be vindicated. And for us today, as we suffer for Christ today, as we see Christians in the world persecuted for the gospel, as people get shunned and abused for bringing up church and the Bible, as kids get bullied in school for uh, telling someone about Jesus, as noteworthy Christians get rejected for proclaiming their faith, as people even die proclaiming Jesus, the families in Iraq, the missionaries in Pakistan, the evangelists in Egypt, the tribes in South Sudan, that despite all this suffering, that future is assured, that justice will be done, evil will be judged, and Christ will win, and our faith, their faith, will be vindicated in the end. We've got a lot to cover tonight, so we're going to look at these two chapters in really big, broad brushstrokes. And while there's some difficult passages here, 
Uh, we won't be able to look at every single detail, uh, but there's four major, four major scenes here. And in each scene, we'll see vindication for the suffering saints and a reason for them and for us today to keep living for Jesus. And the first reason we find is that there will be celebration. Uh, on Friday, uh, when I was driving home uh, from church, I saw a bunch of students walking on the road. Uh, they were really happy. They were yelling and joking around. They were laughing at each other and pushing each other around. They were celebrating. And I remembered they probably just finished year 12. And as we come to verse 1, we find that similar kind of note of celebration. Have a look at verse 1. It says, After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. They're saying, praise God, he's saved us. We find out why as we look at verse 2. For true and just are his judgments. He has conquered the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. There's a scene of celebration because God has done justice. He's judged Babylon. We've seen in the last chapters this Babylon, this corrupting evil and this deceiver. He's been judged and God's avenged. He's vindicated his suffering servants. They praise God again in verse 3. And even the elders and those around the throne join in in verse 4 and 5. They shout, Hallelujah, praise our God. You see, everyone here is praising God. And it's because he's judged the evil Babylon. And his suffering servants are vindicated. That, su that the suffering reader uh, is assured that justice will be done. That even though it's tough to follow Jesus today, that God will one day, he will act in justice and, just and judgment. That one day, we will be celebrating God's justice and our salvation. If we keep reading on, the celebration just keeps going. Now it turns into an image of a wedding. And you know, weddings are a time of celebration. You get to dress up. You get to rejoice with the bride and groom. You get to snack on good food and abuse the bar tab. Well, this wedding is no ordinary wedding. In fact, there'll never be a bigger or better or more longer lasting party than this. No wedding can top this. You see, it's the great wedding of the Lamb, the wedding to tie the knot on history itself, Christ and the church. And guess what? We're all part of it. In fact, we're the bride, the church of Jesus as a whole. Look at verse 7. We've been given fine linen to wear, or we've been made righteous by the saving work of Christ. And we're also the guests too. We get the attention and we get all the food. Verse 9, we, the suffering saints, are invited to this wedding reception. We've been invited or called into God's eternal banquet, into God's kingdom as God's chosen people. And even when John responds to all this and he loses it in verse 10, we're still reminded to praise God. It's about him. He's the just judge. He's the vindicator of our faith. He says, worship him, praise and celebrate him. You see, if you follow Jesus, you're going to face suffering. The Christians in the first century, they knew all about this. But there's hope in living for Jesus. You see, we look forward to a time of celebration. And this is just a snippet 
of what we look forward to, a scene of celebration, praising God, rejoicing in justice and judgment, invited to his great eternal feast. And because of this, Jesus calls us to keep living for him, to keep saying no to idolatry and compromise. As we keep moving on in passage, we enter a new scene in verse 11. Maybe this is the dashing groom for the wedding, but the person you find here is ready to conquer. This little bit reminds us of what we found in chapter 1. Remember, it's picture language. It's like if we imagine the ultimate man. Well, he's got the eyes of George Clooney, the cheeks of Orlando Bloom, the legs of Usain Bolt, the mouth of Johnny Depp, the voice of Michael Bublé, the brain of Steve Jobs, and the hair of Kurt Scheibe. Well, it's not a literal description, but it's a composite picture of uh, it's describing what this person is like. Well, here in this chapter, we have a picture of the ultimate warrior. Have a look at verse 11. He's on a white horse. It's symbolizing his purity and his righteous justice. He's called faithful and true. It's none other than Christ himself. And his purpose here is to judge and to wage war. This is Christ's coming to conquer and to do justice. Verse 12, his eyes are like a blazing fire. He sees all and he judges accordingly. On his head are many crowns, not seven, not ten like the beast, but it can't be counted. He's on a grander scale, more royal than the beast and the dragon. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. In the ancient world, to know someone's name means to have authority or power or control over them. But here, no one knows this guy's name. No one has authority or control over him. Verse 13, we move on. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Maybe it's referring to the cross, but it's probably alluding to Isaiah 63 and this image of God judging the nations. It's the blood of his enemies on his robe. He's referred to here as the Word of God, John's title for Jesus, God the Son, incarnate. It just keeps going. He's got an army in white following him. He fights using a sword that's coming out of his mouth. Verse 15, the word of Christ is the one that executes judgment on the nations. And it just keeps going. Verse 17 and 18, uh, the camera moves and we see this assurance of victory. Even the birds, they've been lined up for this feed. And this uh, feast contrasts the great wedding feast. Uh, this the great wedding feast was a feast of salvation. But this feast here is a supper of judgment. It's dying over the dead, freshly judged. And the scene finally closes. The camera moves once more. The battle here, it's a non-battle. It wasn't even worth commenting on. The beast and the false prophet, they're captured and they're thrown into judgment. And the aftermath here is just a massacre, just totally one-sided. The imagery is so confronting. It's so in your face. And we're reminded here that this is the end. This is the conquest. Jesus is victorious over evil forces. It's not even a battle. It's so one-sided. And however confronting and gut-wrenching it may seem, this again is a comfort to the suffering saints, the readers in the first century. It's an encouragement to us today. Do you know today that Jesus has it in the bag? That while you may suffer now, today, 
while the enemy scoffs at you, tempts you, oppresses you, that Jesus will conquer his enemies. That's another reason here to keep living for Jesus. He will do justice, he will judge evil, and he will be victorious. So he's saying here, keep going, hold on, keep living for Jesus. Now we move on to one of the most contentious passages in the whole Bible. We're moving to chapter 20 and this idea of the millennium. And for most things, uh, I think it's like thinking about KFC chicken. Now bear with me for a second. We know that KFC chicken tastes great, but we have no idea what the 11 herbs and spices are. We have some clues with some good leads, but really they're called secret herbs and spices for a good reason. And this passage is kind of like that. We know the gist of what it's on about. I think it's pretty clear. But in regard to the details, we have ideas, we have good clues, we look at the text and we make conclusions based on them. But I don't think we can know in certainty how all the details work here. So we need to come to this passage with humility, with respect, and focus on what we do know clearly from the text. Because while we may puzzle away at all these little details, I think the overall message is pretty clear. So let's have a look at verses 1 to 3. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Well, what's clear here? Well, this angel, he's got a key. It's symbolizing power and authority. And this angel, he binds up Satan, and Satan's locked, he's sealed, he's chained for a period of time labeled as a thousand years. Satan's bound, he's restrained, he can't deceive the nations. And this is God's judgment on Satan. In verse 4, if we have a look, we read of thrones being set up and those who died being faithful to Jesus come to life, never to taste death again. And they reign on these thrones with Christ during this time. And this coming to life is called the first resurrection. You see, God's people will reign with Christ in this time that Satan's locked up. This is pretty clear. And this is the message that uh, John's giving here to these suffering Christians. Suffering and vindication. He's saying you might suffer now. It might be hard going. You might want to give up. You might want to compromise to give in. But Jesus is telling his people, he's telling us, you see, the tables will be turned on the last day. Evil will be bound. And your reality is on a throne reigning with Christ. So he says, keep going. Keep living for Jesus. Keep saying no to idolatry and compromise. That's pretty clear here. Now there's a number of issues that are less clear. Uh, that the way you read Revelation as a whole uh, will probably determine where you fall on these details. I'll just give you a number of questions uh, that you can weigh up yourself and then we'll keep going. The biggest question obviously here is, is this 1,000 years a literal 1,000 years or is it symbolic for a period of time? 
Uh, there's other questions that will help influence your take on this question. For example, do the events of chapter 20 chronologically follow after chapter 19, or is it a new vision or a new camera angle here? Is Satan totally bound, uh, or is he just restrained from certain activities? Are the thrones here on earth, or are they in heaven? Is the first resurrection a physical resurrection or just a spiritual one? Do all Christians come to life in verse 4, or is it just the martyred ones? And is this rain that is talked about here, is it current or is it in the future? We all have heaps of questions, don't we? Pastors included. And I don't have time to share exactly where I fall on each detail, but in general, this is what I personally think. I think there's a strong use of symbolic or figurative language in Revelation, obviously referring to real events, but it's picture language, like I said before. That's the genre that we're dealing with here. So at face value, I take these 1,000 years as symbolic for just a period of time. Uh, you see numbers are used in uh, Revelation symbolically. So unless there's a good reason that I can have, how I read Revelation moves me to say that it's symbolic. And this period of time, this 1,000 years, I think is between the cross and when Satan's bound and the second coming of Jesus. I think chapter 20 is another rerun of history. We've seen replays all through Revelation. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. There's this pattern, this repetition that goes on, this action replay of history to the last day. That's my current take. But I think despite what view we take, I think we can all agree on this main point. God's people reigning with Christ. It's an image of vindication for these suffering Christians. And this image of God's people reigning, it's contrasted with the fate of Satan. Have a look at verses 7 to 10. Again, this battle is a non-battle. It doesn't happen. Satan's released. He gathers his buddies. He huffs and he puffs, but there's no battle. Satan gets barbecued. He gets thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. You see, in this scene, we have a picture of reality, of vindication and justice. God's people reigning with Christ. We're all reigning with Christ, present, future. It doesn't really matter. The hope is the same for all of us. And Satan's future here is judgment for eternity. He's finished. He's done with and defeated. So you have nothing to fear living for Jesus. So you can hold your head high. You can proclaim the gospel boldly. You can live for Jesus courageously because this is your reality, reigning with Christ. And as we come to the last and final scene, it's a scene of judgment. But this scene is here to encourage the Christians, to encourage God's people. About this time last year, I was going through final exams at college and I had to sit a Greek exam. And exams are used to judge whether a person passes or fails. But this particular exam was really strange for me because I'd actually already passed the subject. So while this exam was supposed to judge my Greek, uh, I didn't feel judged at all. In fact, I was cool and calm because I knew I was going to pass. I knew that it was all in the bag. And this is how this judgment we see here 
is set up in Revelation. You see, if you've suffered for Jesus, if you've endured faithfully to the end, then you've got nothing to worry about because, because in this final scene in judgment, you will also see our final vindication. Justice will be done, that you've been saved by Christ, that you've been living for Christ, and now you'll be vindicated by God for eternity. That's what it's trying to do here. Have a look at verse 11, if you have your Bibles in front of you. There's a throne, and God seated on it, and the dead are raised, and they're judged according to these books of salvation and judgment. Uh, the Lamb's book of life is included. Uh, it includes all those who are saved by Jesus. And there's other books here that record the works of each person. This is the final judgment here. It's the final rerun of history. It's the final act before the new creation at the end. And this is the conclusion that we need to note. Death and Hades, they're thrown into the fire, eternal torment. And those who aren't found in the book of life, they're also judged and thrown into the lake. Again, it's a confronting scene. But remember, this is supposed to be an encouragement to these suffering Christians these people who are risking their lives to follow Jesus, the person whose family has disowned him because he becomes a Christian, the missionary with a bounty of millions of dollars on his head for proclaiming Jesus, those who are being abused, jeered, assaulted for their faith in Christ, for all those who are suffering, their faith and your faith will be vindicated. Salvation is secure here and justice is coming. That's what we find here in this last scene. So you see, these chapters as a whole, they focus on suffering and vindication. Those who suffer for Christ now, you'll be found true on the last day. Your salvation is safe and sure, and their just judgment is coming. So what does this all mean for us today? Well, tonight I've already highlighted the main takeaway. As a follower of Christ, you're going to you're going to suffer as you live for Jesus. Some of you have, and all of us will. For those of you who got baptized tonight, you're going to suffer as you live for Jesus. That's the reality of this world. But Jesus wants us to be assured here that one day God will bring justice. These scenes of conquest and judgment, that's the fate of God's enemies. And these scenes of celebration and reigning, reigning with Christ that's what awaits us as we, reign, as we follow Jesus today. There's so many ways to apply this passage, but I just want to leave us with one simple thought. And the thought is this. Live for Jesus today. You see, God's got the future all wrapped up and in the bag. We're forgiven. We're eternally secure. And one day, one day, evil will be defeated and done away with. We've got nothing to worry about in this world. And all this allows us to live for Jesus today. You see, we will suffer. We might get abused, assaulted. We might become ostracized, persecuted, even killed for following Jesus. But all of this pales in comparison to our future with Christ. If we hold on to Christ, if we live for Christ today. I don't know what living for Jesus means for you today. Maybe it's being more bold about your faith. Maybe it means saying no to idolatry and compromise. 
Maybe it means confessing your faith in baptism, just like these girls did tonight. Maybe it means sharing the gospel in your workplace, in your spare time, maybe down at schoolies this week. Maybe it means being equipped in ministry. Maybe it means putting your hand up to serve, to lead. Maybe it means stepping into the unknown. Maybe it means going to the other side of the world for the name of Jesus. Maybe it means working on your time with Jesus, Bible reading and prayer. Maybe it just means doing what you're doing right now and being comforted by the fact that he, that you will be saved on the last day. You see, God has shown us how it's all going to end. He's assured victory to Christ, vindication, salvation to his saints, and judgment to Satan and all evil. That's why we can live boldly for Jesus today and courageously for the sake of the gospel. Live for Jesus, whatever that means. So let me pray to this end. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these powerful reminders of the hope we have in Christ, that we're eternally saved, that justice will be done against all the powers of evil, that Jesus is victorious on the last day and into eternity. Lord, help us to live to be convicted by this reality, to live boldly, courageously, faithfully, fearlessly, purposefully, and powerfully for Jesus. Work in us by your Spirit to declare your, your gospel wherever you may take us. Strengthen us to keep going, to keep holding on to the end. Stir our hearts to long for the day when evil is done away with, and when we will be with you and we will worship you for eternity. Lord, fix our eyes on this truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.